0: Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 23 of the podcast, the topic is the future of inclusion and diversity in business. Our guests are Alison Maitland and Rebecca Steele, authors of Indivisible, radically rethinking inclusion for sustainable business results. We talk about why both inclusion and diversity, separately and together, matter to the bottom line. We discuss the sensitive aspects of white male earned privilege and how even disadvantaged groups might be privileged in some other way which entails we are all on a journey. We discuss why these issues are soaring now compared to a decade ago. What approaches deliver results that matter what the metrics are, and where do we go from here. Alison and Rebecca, how are you guys doing?
1: Very good, thank you. Great to be with you. Yes, delighted to have this conversation today.
0: Yes, so am I. So I I want to start first with you, Alison. So um, you're a writer, speaker and an advisor and a coach. And of course, both of you have just uh, published a book that we'll talk about. Um, But you've had uh, a career as a journalist at the Financial Times and other things. Uh, You've been at the Cass uh, Business School uh, and have also been involved with the Conference Board. So a lot of experience here, uh, Alison. I always ask my guests, you know, out of everything you've done in your life, what has inspired you the most and continues to inspire you the most?
2: <laughs> That's such a great question. It's really also a very difficult question because um, I'm a sort of passionate, lifelong learner. So I like to see every experience as, as a learning experience. But um, I, th- I think there were several Several things that would really stand out for me, Um, being at university and having the opportunity to move from doing a languages degree to doing a degree in social and political sciences was uh, an extraordinary way to sort of to have my eyes opened up to, to the world, to a world of ideas. And it was also a time of massive um, social and political change. So there were lots of things going on on apartheid, on women's liberation. Um, it was a very exciting time. Uh, and I do remember one particular teacher or, or uh, tutor that I had uh, who taught me something incredibly important for the rest of my uh, writing and uh, you know, communicating career, which was about communicating really clearly, and um, he, he basically, uh, I'd written an, an essay. Uh, I took it along to him, very pleased with it. He said, do you really understand everything that you've written in here? Uh, wow. What does this sentence mean? And I sort of looked at it and I thought, oh, I don't really know. <laughs> so, so so he said, you should never write down something that you don't understand fully yourself. You should always you know write it in words that you understand. And that was a fantastic learning opportunity, learning for me. Um, I think there've been many others. Oh, that's, um, yeah. I'm having... That's
0: great. That's a, that's a great, great learning to kick us yeah, off. Really Thank was, you. Very inspiring. Really Rebecca, um, you know, you are a business strategist. I, I, I know from your background, you've worked, uh, in inclusion in, in corporate, uh, fortune 500 companies, you're now very active in consulting, um, You're Canada based. So, uh, you know, comparing that a little bit with, uh, you know, with Alison, who's uh, UK, London, London based. What about your, your background? What, what is it in your background that you would say has, has inspired you now uh, going forward?
1: Oh, I think it's a a really, as Allison said, a really difficult question to answer. Um, But I have just been thinking about, you know, how much learning has come from different work experiences and how they contrast. Um, I had an early career experience at at a company called Allied Signal, which later merged with Honeywell. And um, it was really inspiring there to see that uh, whole system transformation could be an effective way to make lasting change. Um, And also to have an opportunity to start to see the limits, not just in that organization, but in organizations around the world of what were being called best practices. Um, But if you took a critical lens to diversity and inclusion best practices, we really started to see that they couldn't possibly be best practices because they weren't delivering the results that people needed. And then how much wow. that contrasted with an experience I had at BlackBerry at the time that it was named the fastest growing company in the world. It had this really interesting mix of constraints and enablers that pushed me to be really radically innovative with the approaches I took for diversity and inclusion um, and to get me closer to things like user experience and design thinking and innovation and think about how all of those things could help us find better ways to do this work to get results that matter.
0: Well, one of the reasons I'm asking you, this is fascinating. One of the reasons I'm asking you these questions is that, you know, it strikes me that it's it takes a special person to write a great book about inclusion and diversity. It's not something that everybody can do. So uh, so here's one more question to unpack that a little bit. Uh, Alison, a unique thing that few people know about you, you, you shared with me, you actually grew up or spent parts of your childhood in the Middle East. Give me just a tiny little bit of sense of, of what that has done to to kind of your take on on reality,
2: yeah. Um, I well, I grew up in a diplomatic family, so and we moved around. My father uh, was an arabist, and um, we moved around to different different countries in the Middle East um, during my childhood, sort of interspersed with with periods in the UK. Um, it gave me, first of all, an early you know real sort of rich um, experience of other cultures and other languages, um, and. Being so young and it's so impressionable, I think that that you know just that just stayed with me. That has stayed with me all my life. Um, I think the other really sort of important part of it, uh, though, of course, I didn't know it at the time, was just the experience. Uh, looking back on it, of being an outsider, of being um, different in a culture, uh, you know, where, where I was where I was different, where we stood out, as it were, we stood out. We didn't fit in necessarily, and I think that um, that had you know a lasting impact on me as well to to have had that experience and perhaps to have more empathy as a result uh, with people who who are outsiders
0: interesting Rebecca you however grew up in a small town with turkeys and cows but there was something also in your background that that you've been telling me about uh, that's made you as a family stand out a little bit tell us just a little bit about that before we get to our to our main topic here
1: Sure. I mean, in many ways, it really contrasts with Allison's story that I grew up in this very small, very homogenous town you know, we're talking hundreds of people, not thousands, and and way more turkeys and cows than people, as you said. And talk of diversity was more around things like, you know, did Holsteins or Jersey cows produce the best milk? Um, But fortunately, my world wasn't um, as small as that town was, because my family um, were very interested, curious learners, readers. Um, My mom had this big operatic voice, and we would go um, to her performances and to other musical and arts performances. My grandfather was an oil painter, so he was always taking us to museums across different cities. My sister was really interested in science and math and languages, and she was a great teacher and sort of pulled me along. And, you know, just growing up in kind of a a community, a family community of people that took a stand for other people, um, particularly to try to help them reach their full potential. So, I think all those things do kind of come together in my lens for this work.
0: Wow. Well, we're going to jump into it right now. Uh, You have just written a book uh, called Indivisible. It's, uh, I think, getting uh, pretty uh, raving reviews in in various publications. And uh, I wanted to just start off with this little quote that you have in there. Inclusion does not live in a silo. What, What does that mean?
1: Yeah, um, well, when inclusion is indivisible from the way a whole organization works, um, it's treated as essential for organizations to be able to be successful with their goals and their purpose, Um, and the benefits can be really tremendous. But unfortunately, inclusion is more often positioned as this sort of isolated initiative. It's a silo apart from what's core to business priorities or to an organization's mission um, and really separate from how it works every day. And that uh, really restricts inclusion. and and the value that it can create. So, you know, what we're talking about in the book is that inclusion really cannot live in a silo. It it has to be indivisibly integrated into the heart of a business. And then inclusion can really flourish because it's permeating throughout the whole environment. Um, It enables everyone to be successful uh, without leaving anyone out. And it has a positive impact on real tangible things like, you know, whether or not people want to work for a company and, and how productive they are in an organization. Uh, the quality of things like decision making and, and customer interactions um, boosts to innovation and profit and uh, reputation. So, rethinking yeah. inclusion as a side dish and really mixing it into the main course delivers value.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So, Allison, does that? How does it? did it end up in a silo was that just because it was kind of a mandated initiative or it was just social pressure and then you know you you had to create a business function for it and you had to you know write a report on it and that's why it ended up as a silo or was there something else that puts it in this corner
2: well part of that part of that is really to do with um the the sort of piecemeal approaches that we see in organizations and um that, uh, you know, so, so actually looking at, and maybe also getting confused between diversity and inclusion. Um, so we, we make a, a clear distinction between diversity and inclusion because they are different things, they're complementary, um, but, and, and they're, you absolutely have to have both of them. Um, but diversity is really about you know the rich mix of people that we are of perspectives of, of backgrounds the things that you've been asking us about just now actually uh, of cultures and so on that, that are present in in uh, that are a reality in in society uh, and and also in in workplaces although not necessarily at the very top of workplaces the higher you go Um and uh, inclusion is is about actually. So, so we we see diversity not as a problem, which is often you know often seen as a problem to be solved by organisations. We say no, it's actually an opportunity to be grasped. And inclusion is is grasping that opportunity uh, of, of diversity. It's it's about creating a fertile ground for everybody to to flourish in, for everyone to be able to reach their full potential, for everyone to be able to create uh, to, to create and contribute to their full potential and therefore for organizations really to get the full value out of out of the people who work for them and indeed the people that they are connected to their stakeholders their partners and so on externally as well so inclusion has has often been seen as the poor relation or is it indeed even been confused with diversity. Um, When people talk about having an inclusive uh, uh, culture or something like that, companies are often referring actually to uh, diversity numbers at the top, you know, uh, the the ratio of men and women in leadership, for example. Uh, They're not actually talking about inclusion. Uh, And that's why we really focused on inclusion in this book, because it is often the poor relation. And without inclusion, diversity remains unfulfilled potential.
0: So is inclusion then basically the fairness principle that can lead to diversity? Is that what you're saying? Rebecca,
1: do I, I think it more it's more dynamic than that. I think it's more dynamic than that. Um, diversity is kind of a reality of, you know, a full mix of people on all the dimensions that, uh, that make them who they are. Um, and inclusion is, you know, how we create the kind of environments that can make the most of that. Um, and you really you you can't very well have one without the other um, in terms of ways that create value.
0: Got it. But um, so a, another principle, but I don't think you really use this term. But it's a term that has come up, uh, you know, in various contexts. I wanted you guys to comment on this. So cognitive diversity has has become a little bit uh, discussed, but I think still quite misunderstood uh, in terms of what it's trying to achieve. I think the idea here needs to be unpacked a little bit. What you know, What is this term of cognitive diversity? What could it potentially contribute? I know you guys write uh, something similar because you talk about overlapping identities that come together to create a person's experience. And, and you say every person is more than a single identity. So you're onto the identity part of it. But uh, cognitive diversity, I think, also is pointing to uh, an openness of perspective, but also a depth of perspective that's, you know, is, is needed in organizations. How do you understand this term?
2: So, cognitive diversity, um, well, is, and we talk a lot about it actually in the book, although we don't necessarily use that term. We talk about the importance of people being able to. Um, to argue, to uh, argue with the mainstream ideas, uh, to um, to express dissenting opinions or different opinions, and how important that is for innovation. So, cognitive diversity is really about the differences in in the ways that people think about things, the way that they see things. Um, so, different yeah. perspectives. But uh, it, it it is important. It's very important. Um, and so is identity uh, diversity. So or demographic diversity. They are both, uh, they're both crucial, actually, and um, both of them, you know, really boost innovation and, and the bottom line. Because there's there's a lot of evidence of that from research. Um, for example, uh, the research of, of the late um, Catherine Phillips, who was a, a business school professor, who did a lot of research into um, diverse groups and how uh, how they because they come together and they they actually look diverse. They expect more. Differences in the opinions and the um, perspectives and solutions that are going to come forward. Um, so they are actually more open to different ideas. Um, they work harder to get to those um, new and innovative solutions. They share information better. So, so there's a combination between you know the way that people think differently from each other and how that can challenge and create greater innovation through conflict and through through differences. Not, not I don't mean. Uh, negative conflict, I mean through constructive conflict, uh, but also people's different lived experiences being really critical to um, uh, to that sort of whole mix of perspectives that we need. Uh, remember, we, we need these uh, this mix more and more because the challenges that we face today are just so absolutely massive. And so no single leader, no, no single team, no single uh, organization or indeed country can can solve the challenges that and the and the opportunities that our world presents today.
0: Um, well, am I also then by just using cognitive in in terms of diversity, am I uh, unnecessarily limiting this debate? Because I was talking to some people from IDEO, you know, the design thinking company, and they were reminding me that visual diversity is is you know, and 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 then also emotional diversity is also important. How do you unpack this? And it it strikes me that this whole notion uh, could very quickly escalate into something very hard to. Um, conceive of in an organizational context, because one thing is mandated diversity or mandated kind of ways of, of looking at things. And in the U S right, there's regulations on, on the kinds of discrimination you should not do in terms of recruiting talent, but there's really no end to the kind of diversity is there that one optimally, you know, is talking about, if you say, you know, the world population is, is diverse. Now, if you start unpacking what that diversity is, it's, it's kind of endless. And I, and isn't that the point? I mean, it's almost like biodiversity at some point.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um, It is complex. You know, ideally what you'd be working toward is um, really getting to know people, Uh, as their whole being, you know, all their cognitive, emotional and identity or visible um, differences and similarities, but getting to know a whole person and working to help them really flourish and uh, the best leaders and managers figure out how they can put a mix of people together um, knowing those whole people as individuals, but put them together so that they can make the most of those diversities kind of colliding to uh, to Allison's point. So those different ways of thinking, different ways of working and solving problems, different lived experiences and perspectives all come together that can really make sure you're avoiding, you know, the errors of groupthink and boosting innovation and more.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to to have that angle on it because I think, uh, you know, the main benefits here are very important to to point out, right? And I, and I think your book is about that, right? You're you're saying this is not going to be a book about all of the uh, all of the musts and shoulds of inclusion. Y- you, you're trying to point to some of the benefits. Can you guys list up for me, uh, you know, do you, or is there somewhere in the book that you list very structured how uh, how either uh, you know diversity or inclusion or both? affects the bottom line or are there studies now emerging to start showing this i mean i would imagine it's very difficult to to do so but
1: it's not one of sorry go ahead Alison. okay i mean it's
2: not as i can say it's it's it isn't impossible to to do it there have been an awful lot of studies and we we have pulled them together in the book um and actually we we also um we don't just look we at the, at the sort of the, the the here and now business case, but we also look at how. Um, so we we call it the three P's. So we, we look at how inclusion can help organisations with their performance, uh, with their preparedness for for the future, uh, for a for a, a challenging future full of opportunities as well, um, and and for. Um, for really sort of responding to the need for purpose. So we call them the three Ps, preparedness, um, uh, preparedness performance, preparedness, and, and purpose. I, I don't know, Rebecca, do you want to, to, to talk about the performance aspects initially?
1: Sure, sure. Well, I think, you know, um, there there certainly is increasing evidence um, for these kinds of tangible impacts that are good for organizations, um, including for-profit organizations. So, that's really um, heartening to see. And one of the things that we bring up in the book, too, is that just because something is hard to measure doesn't mean you shouldn't go after it um, and, you know, be innovative and create new ways to measure this just like you would any other difficult business driver um, like marketing or finance or what have but you know we do see that inclusion definitely can fulfill kind of the latent potential of a diverse mix of people because it does enable people to succeed um, without leaving people out. And we do see the evidence that it has a positive impact on things like you know talent attraction, um, decision making quality, um, customer experiences, uh, innovation we've mentioned before, you know profit and revenue, um, social license to operate and, and reputation, and many other things. And, you know, some of the companies that I'm working with are really working hard to make sure they're seeing um, how they can measure the impacts, not just do we have inclusion and is are we making progress on making our organizations more inclusive, but what impact is it having? And we have a couple of case studies in the book that speak to that. Um, is- yeah, so
0: maybe let's get to that. But but here's, here's my question. Who are the actors that are, or the types of groups that are now pushing this forward? So... Is it corporations? So, you know, some of your clients just said, is it the leaders themselves or particular types of leaders in those uh, corporations? Or is it more bottom-up pressure from, I I don't know, employee groups or, or even social movements kind of aside from corporations? Or is it still kind of government- pushing this through, which obviously, you know, there's a reason why government pushes that, you know, it comes from pressure from from the citizenry. So, why is the attention to both, uh, you know, inclusion and diversity now arguably soaring uh, compared to uh, a, a decade ago?
2: Well, it's happening at multiple levels. I and mean, I mean, actually, you've, you've outlined... Um Pretty much all of them, I think. I mean, there is pressure coming from from governments. There's obviously uh, the regulators um, that, that are putting pressure on companies uh, in terms of the uh, you know what, what their their ranks look like, especially their leadership ranks. Um, that isn't yet so much about inclusion; it's more more about diversity. Um, but there's pressure from investors as well uh, on on the same uh, on the same front because there's so much evidence now that both diversity and inclusion. Are good for the bottom line. So, so that's coming f- from externally. It's also coming uh, internally from leaders. I mean, most uh, senior leaders recognise. Very few who would who would not today recognise that this is a very important area for them to focus on. Um, and recent events, like particularly Black Lives Matter uh, and the COVID crisis, which has highlighted systemic. They've both highlighted systemic ingrained. Injustices in society and in organisations have put enormous pressure uh, on leaders to uh, to speak out and to uh, and actually to you know to say, well, we are doing something about this. The question then is,
1: what are they doing, and and is it enough? Struggling to crack the code on innovation?
0: Don't look too hard. Buy the book. Disruption Games' How to Thrive on Serial Failure by Trond Unheim was published by Atmosphere Press in 2020. Common Wisdom says that success breeds success. However, what if only repeated failure does? The author has followed thousands of founders and startups at MIT and beyond as they struggle, pivot, fail, or succeed. The secret? Training as if for the Olympics with the top mentors. Being in the right places and deeply examining what you learn along the way. The biosphere of innovation cannot be a template between R&D, innovation labs, partnerships, startup scouting, corporate venturing, accelerators, or open innovation. You never know where the breakthrough starts. Thriving on failure is the way of science. In four moves, get exposed to disruption, take or simulate risk, persist until point of failure, reflect and recover. Buy the book anywhere books are sold and learn more at disruptiongames.com. Well and, and I think that's that is uh, my question right what breakthroughs if any are needed or or perhaps coming as you see and let's you know just pick inclusion perhaps first because it seems to me that at least you know without taking a very detailed look it, it is a little amorphous so you know I uh, can kind of maybe see that that, that this trend is uh, is coming more onto the stage but it's hard to kind of pin down Without you know uh, digging into it, which you have done, what are the specific breakthroughs that are needed, both at a systemic level, and then let's talk about how you actually uh, break it down in the book, because you actually have specific messages to senior leaders, to middle managers, and and then to individuals, which I'm assuming is your message to society, basically any reader of the book. And and there's at least those three groups, uh, just to take a, kind of a role that you might have in in, in an organization. Each of them have a different job to do.
1: Yes. I mean, it, we do speak to the need to take action and, and action that actually makes a difference, um, not just action that ticks a box. And that action includes things that individuals can do at any level in an organization or society, and also um, the need to add to that with a really uh, full strategy, a comprehensive, cohesive strategy. Um, because inclusion and and its benefits – won't just emerge because of individual will or, or even collective will. And it certainly takes more than kind of pledges or policies. And one of our main points is that it takes more than the piecemeal approaches that we see most organizations taking today, um, where there might be, you know, a few inclusion training programs or a diversity day event or, or something like that. But there's not a cohesive strategy that um, everywhere employees look or workers look, they're seeing that inclusion is the way to go. And so what it, it really takes is this comprehensive, cohesive strategy, again, just like we'd see with any other business driver. And uh, this needs to address both what's inside the organization and also outside the walls of the organization.
0: Do you have an example of that, Rebecca?
1: Yeah. So, so internally, the strategy really needs to address inclusion through um, kind of seven key interconnected components that determine how an organization actually works. And so that would be things like how it in- how inclusion contributes to priority business goals, um, how leaders are selected, how they're held accountable, um, the kinds of skills that workers have, but also their beliefs and how these things result in different behaviors and actions, uh, the roles, the the structures of an organization that support inclusion, and the metrics. Those are all the, or many of the, the kind of internal aspects we need to look at. The external things, uh, means taking into account additional elements like, you know, public policy, regulations, education, uh, the kinds of things outside an organization that either support or hinder inclusion inside an organization.
0: But have you seen any real life? So you said you had case studies. Do you have any, any names or anywhere, any sources? I mean, you, you can read your book and there, there are some named examples in there, but are, are there some, I mean, is the right approach, should I say, rather to, to go looking for individual corporations who have somehow done this or where there are case studies to describe kind of what they're doing or is that the wrong approach to, uh, to take here?
1: It's a good question. And I think, you know, one thing we want to do is learn from the organizations that are being most successful today and also realize where they're still limited and not achieving the results that they need or that really matter. Or yeah, were the there- reason
0: I'm asking you was that I believe you yeah. in your book actually have an example of a person who you interviewed who said, oh, my organization won uh, an inclusion prize, but I don't feel like we are inclusive. So it's like your interview subjects are kind of denying that they should be interviewed for an inclusion. <laughs> I, I mean, is this endemic for the people who are active in this community that they're so self-reflective that they're never happy with, with what they have achieved? Or, or I mean, how do you see
1: this? I think there's a real mix. Um, you know, the people in these roles leading diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, uh, you know, come from different perspectives. Some are really just focused on, you know, how can we do the best of what's being done today, um, be really effective at, at that, and see what kinds of results we can get. Um, and and some kind of have their own blind spots about um, how effective the work really is today there are others who are really looking for transformational approaches that take us, you know, kind of light years beyond the kind of progress we've seen so far. Um, so we want to learn from the companies doing this well, We also need to look at each individual organization and develop a customized strategy that really makes sense for them to make the most of diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout their organization and related to their mission or purpose. And we certainly see this, um, you know, broader ecosystem approach emerging with more progressive and and highly committed organizations. Um, You know, I see it in in startups and scale-ups and mature organizations, but it's still kind of of the the ones on the leading edge. Um, One example that I don't think we do talk about in the book, but I'll I'll add to that is a retail organization that's explicitly embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion into everything they do. Um, And uh, that's with a focus on enabling their mission-critical business priorities around innovation and customer experience that are going to make or break their success. And they're really comprehensive strategy addresses inclusion in, in leadership and their culture, um, in their business processes and systems in their, you know, training and education, governance, metrics, all of that's internal, but they're also collaborating with other companies externally to address systemic discrimination in broader society. So,
0: so we, I wanted to, to bring, uh, I think this is in your book, uh, book you, because you talk about how GDP is, uh, Uh, maybe not the ideal. And I would say it's actually a terrible measure, you know, of economic progress. It's a very simple measure. Um, one of the things that I don't know if you have put this forward or is part of this group of female economists that have come out criticizing GDP, but anyway, GWI is in your book, gross world inclusion as a metric. Where does that come from? And, you know, is that realistic? I mean, GDP, right, is extremely established. It's a, I, I would say, a, arguably a pretty poor measure of anything, but but it is a simple measure that economists have been using for decades and decades to to make some sense of the world economy. What, what would it do to try to include some other metric in there? And how would you measure inclusion on a broad scale like that?
2: Well, that was that was a particular um, uh, meeting that, um, that that Rebecca uh, participated in and, and asked that question. And just just to put it into a broader context, in our book, we we're saying that um, that inclusion um, to to really um, to, to take hold and to thrive in organisations and in society um, needs to be. Uh, given the same kind of impetus as, as sustainability, as environmental, social, economic sustainability. So we see these two things as, as interdependent and kind of two core pillars of the company of, of the future, of, of the successful, sustainable company of the future. Um, but it, that needs to be seen in the larger system, the, the larger world system, which is why we we raise questions in the book about you know the capitalist system, which um, many people are now saying you know doesn't work for them. The Edelman um, uh, surveys are showing this, and uh, you know other systems and how how change is needed because. Change is needed on a much wider scale, and I think Rebecca should really talk to that um, the GWI and where that where that came from.
1: Yeah, well, I certainly had read. Um, you know, even going back to the 1960s would be my frame of economists and world leaders questioning the limitations of GDP. But at this meeting, um, which was focused on the future of inclusion and diversity and equity, uh, there was just a, a start off of the meeting where everyone attending um, was allowed to sort of come up with questions they'd like to be considered for further exploration during the meeting. Um, and this, this just kind of popped into my head. Although, in part, because um, the research that Alison and I did for the book, you know, led us to look at things like Bhutan's uh, looking at gross national happiness, for example. So, I, I popped up that question, and it did get attention, and we did further explore it, um, you know, asking some of the que- same questions that you asked, John, about, you know, is this... Um, Practical is it something that can replace or be added to uh, gross domestic product and so forth, but um, you know it it is aspirational. But um, practicality doesn't always change the world. We have to be more aspirational, and I think you know we do speak very specifically in the book about what it takes to measure inclusion. In more complete and more tangible ways than we're seeing often done in organizations and society today.
2: And there's another, there there's are another now, aspect if, of, it, of this. Yep. Sorry, if I can just uh, just add something to this because um, there's all this talk about building back better. How do we build back better after the COVID crisis? The COVID crisis is, of course, still very much with us, and there's still so many so many uncertainties. But in building back better, it isn't. Really, it cannot just be a matter of thinking of new policy solutions, uh, new things to put in place. Uh, we also need to look at the process by which those policies are made and the process by which they are implemented. Um, and what we would argue would be that uh, you really need to have inclusive processes to do that. You need to design inclusion right in at the start. So if if you're looking to grassroots communities to come up with solutions, and it might be solutions to climate change in their area or climate the climate emergency in their in their region, uh, you need to get uh, you need to have those people feel that they've got a voice. You need to have all of their ideas, because they are the people who are closest to the ground and know, really know it. Um, And in order to do that, you have to have you have to design inclusion into the process of getting that, of getting solutions. And then that sense of accountability, responsibility, we are we all have a responsibility for this, for implementing those solutions. So that's just one example. (laughs)
0: Um, I wanted to take it for a moment to kind of the field of startups, but also merged with this uh, idea of HR and HR tech specifically, because it's a it's an area where uh, there there's been quite a bit of progress in the last few years, mostly because I guess these machine learning algorithms have gotten better at uh, you know counting counting things, and and uh, you know the HR organizations have then been uh, approached with the better systems in terms of applicant tracking but also rewards and recognition uh, software. And, and, and thirdly, also kind of voice of the employee type platform where you are capturing some of the things you're talking about there. To what extent is technology a panacea for this area in terms of potentially being able to capture more of uh, the surrounding feedback that an organization needs in order to capture so many of these aspects that we were just talking about? Or is it too simplistic to think that we're going to find some solution that's just going to magically capture this?
2: Well, I think I'd, I'd start by pointing to some of the uh, some of the dangers, actually, of AI systems if we don't design them uh, with diversity and inclusion in the mix. So, if you don't have diverse design teams, well, I mean, I'm sure we've seen some of those lately, really haven't seen, we? We've seen some yeah. really unfortunate um, outcomes. I mean, there was the example that was, uh, you know, that the things that could go wrong that was reported by Reuters and, and other uh, organizations, media organizations, about the that, that experimental recruiting tool that Amazon um, had to scrap because they found that it was discriminating against women. So, I think that was that was a hiring engine that was rejecting women for technical posts because um, it was programmed to to vet people based on patterns in in uh, CVs. Of previous candidates, most of whom were men, so um, there is, right. you know, there's such a warning signal there. We, AI is about, um, ab- about sort of. Well, a lot of these algorithms are very
0: conservative. Yeah, yeah they're very yeah. conservative in nature. They, they, they are weighing past experience, of course, because it doesn't have any any other uh, type of experience to yeah. weigh it with.
2: Exactly. So, so it's yeah. it's absolutely critical that um, that the tech companies call on a really diverse mix of people, whether it's in the design teams themselves, or actually more broadly in terms of uh, you know the way that they are doing their business. So, but but getting people in from the education world, from the medical world, you know, and, uh, from professionals from across different sectors, as well as as that diversity of things, you know, of the, the demographic type diversity that, that we've been talking about before, um, because y- y- you know you can just have horrendous mistakes. You and, and actually, there's a there's an example in the book, isn't there? Uh, a case study in the book of how how something went wrong with a with a tech company. We can tell you about that if you like.
0: Well, so I, I guess where I wanted to just uh, bring in uh, this uh, idea that. As you have pointed out, right, we are in a disruptive moment right now, and and that's not you know under debate, right? It's a it's a confluence of things happening right now. Uh, it, it's kind of curious because we were in a phase of almost unprecedented technological progress, or at least so so we said to ourselves, right? But right now we're caught in this very interesting moment where there clearly are a lot of voices. Uh, Questioning the very basis of uh, you know how, what we've built our society on. I was going to ask you in in you know, in in this field uh, of, of diversity, what are the disruptive forces that you think right now are going to shape the debate? And you know, if we take this kind of towards the next decade where do we go from here and and what, what, if anything, that's going on around COVID or around even these positive trends in the workplace where they are now putting in place more and more diversity and inclusion initiatives, what are some of the things that will shape the next decade and where are we going in this field?
1: I think um, to get that started, that uh, startups and movements and pandemics like COVID-19 are disruptors. They make us challenge the status quo um, and push new ways of thinking and, and new ways of working. Um, I was just reading a great article featuring um, some insights from a retired professor, Pomada, from Johns Hopkins, who talked about pandemics as accelerators of mental renewal because people listen and they connect and they talk and they are kind of responding to a whirlwind of danger um, and, and thinking in new ways. And, you know, the startups that I work with are, of course, often very agile disruptors, challenging ideas and, and products and services or processes. And they tend to be agile, so can adapt kind of quickly to changes or, or to new insights. And it's all about, um, in addition to the movements like Black Lives Matter and Me Too, um, you know, these make us rethink essentials about work, um, what the world really needs and how do we understand the essence of people um, and our relationships with each other? And this gives us a framing for a kind of future where all people can be better off. And so, you know, in the book, Allison and I really call for more ambition with inclusion to envision designing an inclusive future that reduces disparities among people, that that can make the most of a full mix of people and contributes to broader sustainability. But that kind of requires... A couple of things. I mean, first, we do need to actually get to work to collectively design inclusive ways that make the most of a diverse mix of people. So we're consistently tapping into collective wisdom and and, um, creating innovations and and also getting the collective commitment to bring about um, and sustain these innovations for a better future. And, you know, we also- I'm
0: sensing here uh, re- between you, Rebecca, sorry for interrupting you. No, I didn't mean that between Rebecca and, and and you, Alison, a slight sort of, uh, you're, you're taking two paths, at least with me in this interview, uh, you know, in terms of optimism and not pessimism, but realism, that's what I'm sensing between the two of you. Because if you look at the next decade, you could also say, and I'm going to paraphrase and, and you know box in Alison by doing so, and please defend yourself, but, you know, you could say, this is looking pretty bleak because, you know, right now we need to get society back and working. People need to. We have a bigger problem getting people back to work than we have actually redesigning work in society. Versus Rebecca, you're sort of saying this is the moment where we're going to redesign everything and the system. So I think you both seem to d- agree that the system is broken, but you would have to agree. And and I guess I'm going to take Alison's side here for a second. There is something. In in all of the complexities that are happening right now, that could just lead to, you know, we're actually now need to spend a lot of time just on pointing out all the problems, uh, and so we might actually be setting ourselves back a little bit as as we're reacting versus just kind of jumping to this new future. So where where do you stand on this? And and uh, you know, is it could it go in both directions?
2: Mm, very very good question. And. Um and it's interesting because i mean i'm a, i think i am essentially an optimist but i'm also, i'm also very i'm very conscious of where the trends are you know pointing right at the moment and this this is a this is a moment when things are looking in many ways very bleak um but uh, at the same time the capacity for human reinvention and for the human spirit to sort of win out is is extraordinary phenomenal so i mean I, te- I i do tend to be an optimist if you're saying that i'm sounding rather more pessimistic maybe it's just because of some of the i guess i we're meant to right say now. you were
0: sounding more of a realist uh, Alison, you were sounding like a realist.
2: a realist well um yeah. uh, i mean uh, realism and optimism can go hand in hand i do i do actually see a huge uh, opportunity or opportunities that, that are in this crisis um one of them, I think, and Rebecca was talking about about one of them, which is uh, uh, which is about how organizations uh, can get together to work collectively for change across society, not just not just internally, uh, as they as leading organizations have been doing with the climate emergency, um, inclusion is also there is an emergency. Uh, to, to address here. And um, we do see that uh, that some leading organisations are now putting those two things together in one, under one umbrella. And that is where we think the future of, you know, the most pioneering organisations are going to lead us and pioneering organisations tend to pull others with them. Another thing that we've seen in the crisis, which... Um, which has been extraordinary, actually. We've seen many examples of very good, um, very bad leadership from world leaders. And uh, some of the best, you know, one of the best examples uh, of a strong and compassionate, strong and compassionate leadership um, has been the inclusive leadership of um, the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, who – has and they have managed extremely well they've managed the crisis extremely well in New Zealand i mean okay you can say there are lots of reasons why they they have done that but they put in 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 place measures right at the start but but she is an example of uh, many of the of the traits and the um the factors that need to be in place for inclusion to thrive and we we talk in in our book we actually talk about 10 enablers of inclusion and Jacinda Ardern has has demonstrated quite a number of those including what we talk about being shared power shared power distributed power that's to say people having power not exercising power over other people but sharing power with people and she did that by giving very clear messages to the people of New Zealand that they were all in this together. They all had a responsibility. And her message was to them was, be strong and be kind. And she said, you know, you need to look after your neighbours. She was very clear about it. Look after your neighbours, look after yourselves. And she also had a very clear message, which we talk about as being shared purpose, a very important part of inclusion. And the shared message was, we're going to save lives. That is the, the key thing. That's the priority right now. That's what we're going to do. So she, she's a, an example of inclusive leadership, a world leader. She's been much written about, much commented on. And we see that kind of that style of leadership as being critical for the world that we're moving into, this new world in which more and more people are working dispersed. Uh, we won't call it virtual because it's real work, <laughs> but we're all working, you know, in a dispersed way, uh, using these kind of, uh, this kind of technology and you need those inclusive people skills and they will, they will thrive. People with those skills will thrive in the future. That's, that's leadership for the new reality.
0: Alison, it took me a a bit of time to gather up enough courage to ask this question, but the elephant in the room in, in all inclusion discussions is men the role of men and i often feel this as you know being a man that it is sometimes hard to figure out how to insert yourself in this debate and and this by the way goes to any debate where you're perhaps not thinking of yourself as well, you're part of the problem, but you're not in it as, as as part of the solution. So how do you insert yourself in the debate? And it goes for Black Lives Matters in terms of, you know, for me, certainly. And it goes in into this debate. And, you know, I don't think we should do a, a, a massive session right now on uh, female leadership, but clearly what you're pointing to in COVID, and this has been widely discussed, is it so happens that Right now, at this moment, female leaders seem to be coming out on top in in lots of actually studies uh, that they've now started to do around this. Um, But without making it into kind of a, 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 you know, one gender versus another, how do you chart the role for men in both inclusion and diversity debates? What is the appropriate way? And is it appropriate, like me, to have this feeling that, you know... I'm not entirely sure how I'm going to insert myself in this debate. I know that we obviously have to become part of the solution, but uh, I'm—I guess—I'm so afraid of stepping wrong.
2: Well, it's wonderful that you've raised this elephant in the room, isn't it, Rebecca? I mean, yeah, it's—it's uh, it's so critical, and, and we do address it head-on in the book. I mean, we've got a section about how to get—you know—how to get white men on board. Um, because it's a question that's raised over and over again. But the key thing, I think, the key thing is, first of all, that our book really talks about inclusion as being for everyone. Everybody is involved. Everybody is responsible for it. And everyone uh, can experience exclusion, including white men uh, can experience exclusion. So once you kind of you, you frame it in that way. Well, and
0: let me tell you, <laughs> when white men feel excluded, they let people know. I, I think that's actually you know that's not even a joke, right? That's part of the problem because when groups that are elites or suddenly start feeling like they're they're not, they really make themselves very vocal, uh, right? And and that could be, mm. I guess, also a massive challenge. Um,
2: yes, or suddenly come come across that. But there are also uh, white men who uh, hide, you know, who cover what uh you know what they're experiencing or a part of themselves because they don't feel that they will fit in at work um but anyway to answer you to your, well i'll have a go at answering your question and i'm sure rebecca will, will will want to jump in as well but um it is critical for white men to be uh, or for, for men sorry let's say let's say for men i don't know maybe we should say for white men to be um Uh, You know, part of the solution and to be driving change because uh, it is tied to uh, better outcomes for business and to better outcomes for society. And that benefits all of us. Um, But also because, you know, it's often white men uh, who have who have the most power in organizations and are the dominant people. And it does require change. And as a white woman, I'm experiencing this myself in terms of the Black Lives Matter um, movement and, uh, reading and learning more about the white privilege that I've experienced all my life, that I've had all my life, things that I take for granted. Um, and as, as white women, I think that, that we can, um, you know, from the experiences that we've had in our own working lives and some of the things that have happened to us, we can also, you know, identify, uh, similarities, like things like um, tokenism, being, you know, being the token woman or the, the token black person in the room or being asked to, uh, you know, go on a panel or to speak for the whole of your sex or for the whole of your race, things like that, um, which, uh, you know, which are very uncomfortable for this. So it's, it's about we, we all have to make this change ourselves. And, and it is personal and it takes courage. I just say, you know, be courageous because we've all got to do it. (laughs) What would you add, Rebecca?
1: (laughs) Well, love what you said already. And I would just add that, you know, often people get sort of um, held back because of this sense of discomfort uh, around potentially saying the wrong thing or taking a misstep when it comes to this work. And um, the the reality is that you're guaranteed, no matter who you are, to have a misstep or quite a few. Um, But You know, we can't take our our privilege and um, just say, well, we don't want to be uncomfortable, so we're not going to be. It's much more uncomfortable to be in a marginalized population. Um, So what we need to do with any privilege that we have is actually just wade right in and think about it as sort of similar to, you know, becoming good at a sport. Um, Initially, you're not very good at it and you make mistakes. Um, You could be very uncomfortable with lots of sore muscles and injuries and so forth along the way. But that doesn't mean you don't keep going. And the more you practice, the better you get and the better impact you have.
0: So that's uh, actually my my last question relates to this because these co- topics are as we talked about they're complicated and and you uh, Allison brought in earned the privilege which actually happens to even to marginalized groups because you realize that there are there's some aspect of my identity where I actually have an, uh, a a much more privileged access uh, you know than others and and for women this happened around Black uh, Lives Matters for for others it's it's different. Um, But anyway, how do we track this field? I mean, your number one answer is, of course, go out and buy uh, Indivisible, by your book. (laughs) But how do you yourself stay up to date? And what do you recommend my listeners do to practice our inclusion and diversity muscles beyond just reading one book? Are there particular websites, particular newsletters, particular daily practices that one should do to get this done?
2: Ooh, very good question. Uh, I mean, one of one of the things that that I think we would like to tell you about, because this is something that um, uh, you know certainly certainly one one multinational is going to be doing um, this this fall, uh, is is something we call reading for action circles. So, um, and this is around our book uh, Indivisible, um, but it's it's within um, within organisations setting up. Circles, so where every employee from senior leader to individual contributor can take part. Um, And basically, you know, you you read the book and then you come together to discuss the insights from it and what you've learned about inclusion and what you are going to do differently, what actions you're going to take. And this can create both a sort of grassroots uh, movement for change um, and small actions for change that are very easy to take within your team as an individual, uh, as well as, um, you know, systemic change that has to happen at the same time, right through the organization, you know, led by by senior leaders. So that's, and it's a very inclusive way to actually design the future for, for your organization. What, what would you add? We've got reading lists, of course, massive reading lists as well. <laughs> yeah,
0: and some of those are in the book, right? So if they pick up your book, they'll get access to to some of those reading lists.
2: There, there are quite a lot of references in the book. We've got a lot of notes in yeah. the book. Yeah, and um, uh, and I'm, I, I mentioned that I was uh, you know learning about white privilege at the moment. I'm uh, learning more about my white privilege at the moment. I've I've been um, you know attending some. Really interesting uh, webinars, learning more about uh, directly about the black experience, the black experience in different cultures as well. Um, and I'm reading uh, Layla Sard's amazing book, which is very challenging, um, called Me and White Supremacy. Um, and really, a lot of you know, you have to do a lot of work with that. It's a lot of self-reflection, and then uh, and then, what am I going to do next? So, uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of sort of moving into action.
0: Rebecca, I'm going to give you the, the last word. Just um, mentioning one of my uh, former colleagues, actually, she, she did a several months, she moved into a uh, challenged community somewhere in the United States to learn about her her, her own uh, privilege. And I think that was a very powerful approach. So, you know, at a, at any age, you, you, there are ways that you can take drastic action in, in order to try to empathize with, uh, you know, with the situation that you've just been watching from the sidelines. But Rebecca, what what, what would you say?
1: Uh, In terms of learning, there are just so many opportunities, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, um, reading, podcasts, films and documentaries are great ways to gain insight and empathy. Um, You know, I think some of the most valuable things that have happened in my life have to do with actually connecting with people who are both similar and different to me. And, you know, just embracing those relationships as opportunities to learn. And certainly, even though I've been doing this work for more than 30 years, um, I definitely sometimes still make mistakes because we're dealing with human dynamics, but, you know, a really good, um, thing to learn if, if people don't know it already is how to say, I'm sorry, and to learn and reflect and do something different going forward, um, you know, and hopefully one day we'll get beyond the COVID restrictions and be able to travel again, because I really uh, appreciate what you're saying about a colleague who had an opportunity or took an opportunity to move into a different kind of community to learn firsthand. And if people can't actually take that step, they can do, um, you know, things like I've done, which is to, to go to a different country and do a homestay and get to know people on a one-to-one basis and and reflect on that and learn. And then to really make a commitment to not just take individual action, but to get together with other people to take collective action in order to design a better future that does address the uh, difficulties that we have in our systems that don't work for everyone today and to drive that systemic change that can design a better future.
0: Okay, then, on that note, a, a mix of individual and collective action. I thank you so much for what you have taught me today. And um, I hope that we were able to bring some of that to our listeners. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you thank very you much. Thank you for the um, opportunity. Thank you.
0: You have just listened to episode 23 of the Futurized Podcast with host Trun Anne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of inclusion and diversity in business. Our guests were Allison Maitland and Rebecca Steele, authors of Indivisible, Radically Rethinking Inclusion for Sustainable Business Results. We talked about why both inclusion and diversity separately and together matter to the bottom line. We discussed the sensitive aspects of white male earned privilege and how even disadvantaged groups might be privileged in some other way which entails we are all on a journey. We discussed why these topics are soaring now compared to a decade ago. What approaches deliver results that matter, what the metrics are, and where we go from here. My takeaway is that unless diversity is understood widely as a competitive asset, those organizations that are lucky enough to have it are likely not monetizing it. As for inclusion, it's important far beyond the fairness aspect. It turns out all of us have aspects that may lead us to be excluded from something unless society explicitly mandates being inclusive. Again, the benefits are tangible and important. As for where we go from here, it is both an individual and a collective responsibility. But the issues are squarely on the agenda. Now we just need smart ways to make progress. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.